Good morning, church family. It's great to see you all this morning, virtually. I'm picturing you in my mind, or I'm picturing your faces that I see on those Zoom meetings. And I just want to encourage you, if, if, uh, if you haven't joined in one of those Thrive groups, or you haven't been a part of a post-service fellowship, or you haven't called in on one of those office hours, please, please do that. Um, I want you to know, it's not even a commitment. If you're like, I, hey, I, Tuesdays and Wednesdays are kind of busy for me, but I, I'd love to jump in once, that's great. Come in once. We just, I miss seeing you. It's been over a month since I've seen some of your faces. And, and there are some people, you've probably started listening to this simulcast, and I've never seen you, and, and we'd love to see you, we'd love to meet with, with you, we'd love to fellowship. So just please know, that's kind of my pitch there. I miss you, and we'd love to see you. So keep that in mind. We are back in the book of Exodus this morning. Exodus chapter 10 is where we're going to be picking up as we're moving into part six now of our series called Awe as we work through the signs and the wonders and the 10 plagues that God pours out upon Egypt. And we have a powerful one again this morning and we have a powerful question that God is going to ask Pharaoh and it's something that applies to each one of our lives. So I'm really wanting us to just be sensitive to to even pray now that we would have ears to hear what God wants to speak to us. So pray with me now. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Father, it's been my prayer all week that God, this, uh, this would really hit us deep within the depths of our heart, deep within the depths of our soul, Father. Your word always does that. It's living and it's active and it's sharper than any, than any two-edged sword and it's able to rightly divide between the thoughts and intents of our heart. What is soul? What is flesh? What is spirit? What is truth between all those things that are not? And so God, I pray, that's my prayer. And I'm, I'm not asking something of you that isn't consistent with your will. That's what you say your word is. It's a hammer that breaks things into pieces. It's a guide that points us into the way of truth. It's, it's something that brings illumination to who you are, Jesus. You are the word. So God, I just pray that you'd be sent to every house. You'd be sent through every device. You would be sent to every heart of every person who has, is listening or will listen. Father, this is a truth that I pray your Holy Spirit would bring right to our lives in a very practical way this morning. And we pray that together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we get back to the book of Exodus, after a week off from Easter, I have a little bit of a lengthier introduction because I want, I want to refresh our memories with what we're talking about here. We're, we're going to cover this morning the eighth plague, which just means there have been seven before it, which means that if you're joining us for the first time after Easter, you're picking up this study after a few weeks off, things have continued to escalate. And so I just want you to know that the eighth plague means we're not at the beginning, we're not in the middle, we're towards the end of this dialogue slash confrontation that God is patiently having with Pharaoh. As God has been working these things out to try to work out a greater purpose and accomplish his plans here in Egypt. So I just want to do that. I want to just take a minute just to remember what is going on and to kind of answer this question. I want us to remember the purpose. I'm talking about a, a big picture, greater purpose and plan for what the book of Exodus is about. 
All right, I want us to just kind of refresh our memory. So we're going to talk about that. What's the big picture plan? This is not God just flexing his muscles because he can, right? God isn't vain like that. God does things with purpose and intensity and with a plan to accomplish his task. So we're going to talk about that. But then secondly, I want us to zero back in on what specifically is going on with Pharaoh. Pharaoh has kind of been the smaller picture plan of what God is doing and teaching us some very practical, applicable truths. Because Pharaoh is this picture of what it looks like to continually oppose God in your life. Pharaoh is the picture of the person who hardens their heart and refuses to submit, refuses to obey, refuses to let God be God, but continues to take that stance of opposition. So we're going to talk about that and it will set us up perfectly to see where we're going in the text this morning. So first, what's the bigger picture plan? Well, I put the verses in your study guide, but back in chapter seven, we were told the three things that God wants to accomplish through these signs and wonders, through these 10 plagues in Egypt. And if you didn't write them down, then here's another opportunity for you to write them down. Three things. Number one, God is bringing judgment one by one down upon the false gods and idols in Egypt, right? One by one, one plague after another, God is doing something specifically, not by happenstance, specifically to show that he, not that false God or the created God in Egypt, he, the Lord God, the God of heaven and earth is greater than those other gods in Egypt. And he's been doing that successfully, powerfully, unmistakably with each passing plague. And we're well, there's, there's been 10 already. That's because there were a lot of gods worshipped in Egypt. But not a single one has been able to prevent God from doing what God wants to do. Not a single one has been able to stop what God has wanted to do. Not a single one has prevailed in any way, shape, or form over the Lord. In fact, it is, they're over seven up until this point. Right? They've done nothing to prevent, nothing can stop God from accomplishing his purposes. So that's purpose number one. He's bringing judgment down upon the false gods and idols of Egypt. Number two, the second reason is God is revealing himself through these 10 plagues. Multiple times in the text already, God has told Pharaoh, this is who I am. This is so you may know that I am the Lord. This is so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. And it's been an answer to Pharaoh's own question that he asked when God sent Moses and Aaron to him in chapter five for the very first encounter. Remember, Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? Who is he? Why should I obey him? Right? He asked, Pharaoh asked, He hasn't liked the answer so far, but he asked, and God is faithfully answering him. So he's revealing himself. God is perfectly and completely awesome. God is the only source of true awe. God has shown himself to reign supreme. So that's purpose number two. God is revealing himself in power. Revealing himself to the Egyptians and all the children of Israel who are in Goshen, in Egypt, and really all of the world, because here we are still talking about this today. Purpose number three is God is working out a plan of redemption for his people. God has said over and over, his terms have not changed. They will not change. We'll see them restated again in the text today. Let my people go so that they may serve me, worship me. 
It's a plan of redemption. God is working out a great redemption for his people. God is fulfilling his promises. I want you to know that and trust that God keeps his promises. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 15. When God told Abraham, Abraham, your descendants, those are who we're talking about in Exodus. Those are the Hebrews, the children of Israel, the children of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who's renamed Israel, the same descendants. God told Abraham back in chapter 15, your descendants, your children, they're going to be in a land as strangers. They're going to serve them, speaking of this time. But God says, I will judge that nation and I will deliver them out. That's what he's happening, fulfilling his purposes, working out a great work of redemption. So that's the bigger picture. Just be reminded of that. That's what we're talking about. That's where we're at in this eighth plague as God is fully working this out and almost bringing the situation to a climax with the 10th plague. We're only three away. But this morning, I want us to kind of zoom in a little closer and I want us to look again at this situation with Pharaoh. Because the second thing I want you, I want you to be mindful of and, and considering here is, is what has been Pharaoh's problem? What is Pharaoh's issues of all the things that are going on, of everything that has been revealed to him? We're thinking, what's Pharaoh's problem? Well, what does God want Pharaoh to do? Well, even before he says, let my people go, that's the obvious. He wants you to soften his heart. He's told him that surrender to his will and obey. I want you to admit that I am the Lord Pharaoh. I want you to be able to say, God is the I am, and and Pharaoh to admit, I am not. God is the Lord, and I am not. But with each opportunity that Pharaoh refuses to do that, He's hardening his own heart, and then God is affirming his decision by hardening Pharaoh's heart for him. And the one thing God wants him to do seems to get farther and farther and farther away. And that has a tendency to happen with us. We can harden ourselves towards a situation. We can dull our ears towards what God wants us to do. And it's like we start to get a little bit more set in our ways. The book of Hebrews says, encourage each other daily while it's still called today, lest you and I be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's what sin does. It hardens us and it deceives us. And then it gets to the point where we start to call something that's clearly wrong right because we've been hardened and deceived. And that's Pharaoh every single moment, every single opportunity through seven plagues. And he's been hardening himself. But as we take this a little deeper to the level that I really want to talk about this morning, if we could sum it up, Pharaoh's main problem, what is, the, what is his biggest issue? It's that he has an arrogant stance towards God. It's that he refuses to humble himself. This is the section where we're looking at the awe of God being displayed even in the face of arrogance, even in the face of Pharaoh unwilling to yield to who God is in person, in being through the revelation that he's given. But that's the one thing he won't do is he won't humble himself. I want you to look at a reference verse that I hope shows up on your screens this, this morning. But this is from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. Listen to what Peter says. He says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. And the elders are like, yeah, that's right. But here, listen to this part. He says, yes, all of you, elders, young people, and everyone in between, yes, all of you, be submissive to one another. But here's the part I want us to see. And be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, 
casting all your cares upon him for he cares for you. Now I bring this verse up because can't you see the connection to what is going on? What Peter is inspired by the Holy Spirit to record thousands of years later and what God is trying to work out in Pharaoh's heart through these plagues? Really, it's the same thing. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) It's the one thing that Pharaoh really wants to do. It's the one thing that God really wants Pharaoh to do, and it's just to have a humble heart before God. Think about that phrase, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Pharaoh has literally been seeing the mighty hand of God, and yet the one thing he is unwilling to do is humble himself. And I want us to know this is one of the things that, I think one of the greatest things that ails the human heart today. I think this is one of the most practical messages that can come to us as Americans right now. Our biggest problem is oftentimes we just will not humble ourselves before God. We have this kind of underdog mentality. We're, we're, we're clawing our way to the top. We're, we're going to be entrepreneurs and we're going to start something and we're going to work with the sweat of our brows and it's going to turn into something beautiful because we believe that. That's the American dream. And so we think, well, I'm going to do that with God. I'm just going to work, and I'm going to earn his favor, I'm going to work it out, and he says, you can't. You need to humble yourself before me, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. So we need to keep that in mind, because that's what's going to, to be the situation with Pharaoh. And by the time we're done with the text, by the time we're done with the book of Exodus, friends, I promise you, the one guy we don't want to be like is Pharaoh. We don't want to be like that. And we're going to see God is going to give him another opportunity, and his opportunities are dwindling. By the time we get to the plague of darkness next week, you're going to hear Pharaoh say, I never want to see you again. And Moses and Aaron are going to say, you will never see my face again. Think about that. This is his second to last opportunity to humble himself before the Lord. Before the Red Sea drowning comes for him. So just let a a sense of sobriety, a sense of seriousness, and even humility before the text try to come across us and our hearts now. Look at what we're told. Chapter 10, verse 1 says this, Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son the mighty things that I have done in Egypt and my signs which which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So a couple things to point out quickly as we get started here. Once again, the Lord meets Moses, meets with Moses and prepares him to go again before Pharaoh. And I want you to see a couple things we've seen from the Lord. He tells Moses beforehand, hey, I want you to be prepared. Pharaoh is still not going to listen. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, he says. God is confirming Pharaoh's stance of opposition against the Lord and against his will. And so he tells Moses, hey, don't be discouraged. This is what's going to happen. So then he moves on and he's starting to tell him, this is not going to deter my plan and my purpose at all. In fact, I'm just going to use this to get greater glory out of the situation and to increase my signs and wonders throughout all of Egypt. God is showing Moses he is still worthy of awe, even in the face of arrogance. So he's still going to work this out. But this is what I want you to catch here in verse 2. 
six times before this, through the seven plagues before this, and I did the homework, I put the verses in your study guide for you to be able to see this, but six different times, the Lord has said something through the first seven plagues in the form to Pharaoh of saying, this is so you will see that I am the Lord. This is so that you will see that there is none like me. This is me answering the question for you. And again, that statement has been directed specifically towards Pharaoh. Sometimes we can want to have a heart for Pharaoh. Oh, poor Pharaoh. And we say he's without excuse. Friends, he's without excuse. God has shown him and revealed himself to him again and again and again. But what I want you to catch here is this. In these last three plagues, God is turning his focus not so much towards Pharaoh, but towards his people who are in the land of Goshen. And that's what he says here. For the very first time in all of these plagues, notice what he says. In in verse 2, he says that you, Moses, he's talking to Moses, that you, Moses, may tell in the hearing of your son, Moses, and your son's son, your grandsons, the mighty things that I have done in Egypt. He says, so that you, Moses, may know that I am the Lord. He's turning around and saying, I also am revealing myself to you. And I want us to explore this for a minute. The children of Israel, the descendants of Abraham here, they've been in the land of Egypt for 430 years. And for most of them, especially this generation who's alive and about to be delivered here from bondage, they have never seen and experienced the Lord God doing the Lord God type of things. They have heard what he did for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They heard what he did for Joseph and bringing them here to escape the famine in Egypt. But then all these years have passed and they haven't seen a whole lot until this moment, this season where God starts revealing himself through his mighty power, through the mighty workings of his mighty outstretched hand. And so he's coming back and saying, Moses, I'm charging you not to forget what I'm doing as I reveal myself to you. And then he says, I want you to know that I am the Lord and I don't want that knowledge to stop there. Moses, I am charging you, tell your sons and tell your sons' sons, tell your daughters, tell your granddaughters who I am. Tell them what I've done. Tell them what I'm capable of. Tell them how I worked out their great redemption in delivering them from the land of Egypt. I love that. I love that we have this in the scripture. I love that we have this charge for us. I love that Moses obeyed. I love that Moses did what God asked him to do. Case in point, we have the book of Exodus. We have this account recorded for us. He did that, and we're going to read about him doing that, orally telling the children of Israel what God has done right through here. And so I want to charge you, church, mothers, fathers, grandparents, tell your kids who God is. Tell your kids who Jesus is. Don't ever stop telling them. Listen, even in the face of arrogance, tell them who the Lord God is. Don't ever stop telling them, no matter how old they get. Keep sowing that seed in. I am here today. I was brought to church early on as a young kid, and I'm, I'm told the word of God, and there's those, it's a seed. It's like seed that gets planted in your heart, and it bears fruit, because my parents told me, and their grandparents told them. There's a whole lineage of people who are in the Lord today because of grandparents and faithful parents like you, church. Be those parents. Tell your kids and tell your grandkids. And what I love about this is we're in a current situation where, listen, you're the only one who can. 
again, right? Maybe they're kind of tuning into me like kind of right now and wondering when this guy's on the TV is going to stop talking. But you, you have their ear now more than ever. And it's not being polluted by anybody else. You have their ear. Spend some time telling them who God is. Telling them your testimony, how God has delivered you. Pass that on. Continue to do that. Moses does that. We want to do that. And I I just love that he takes a moment here to give us that charge. Verse 3. It says, So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh... And said to him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may serve me. Or else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory and they shall cover the face of the earth so that no one will be able to see the earth. And they shall eat the residue of what is left, which remains to you from the hail. And they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. They shall fill your houses, the houses of all your servants, and neither your fathers nor your fathers' fathers have seen since the day that they were on the earth to this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go so that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet know Egypt is destroyed? So Moses and Aaron were brought again to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones that are going? And Moses said, We will go with our young and our old, our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds. We will go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said, The Lord had better be with you when I let you go and your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you. Not so, Go now, you who are men, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desired. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. So here's how this whole thing goes down. Moses and Aaron, they're commanded by God. They go back before Pharaoh. Notice they repeat the same exact terms. Let my people go. These terms will not change. These are non-negotiable. There is no compromise. This is God's will. Let my people go so they may serve me, worship me. And then I want you to see that God knows the true problem. God is going to put his finger on the problem, what is really going on with Pharaoh, what is really preventing this situation what is his greatest hindrance he asks the question in verse 3 how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me i want you to think about that question they show up restate the terms and say how long pharaoh how long will you keep refusing to humble yourself before me and i want you to understand that i know it says that god has hardened his heart but then there's this question how long will you refuse which is insinuating He has the opportunity to stop refusing to humble himself. He can clothe himself with humility. He can stop choosing to refuse himself, to to refuse the Lord and standing in opposition against God. But we're going to see he's not going to do that. But I love that question. Hold on to that. We are definitely going to come back and talk about that before we close. But I want us to see that's the problem. Pharaoh is unwilling to humble himself before the Lord God of heaven and earth. 
Pharaoh has this idea in his mind, something that has been told to him since he was a youth. He was told, you're a god, Pharaoh. You're in the lineage of gods. You're a big deal in Egypt. In fact, you're the biggest deal in Egypt. There's nobody bigger than you when it comes to Egypt, Pharaoh. And you know what? That was probably true for a time until the circumstances have clearly changed. And that's not true anymore, is it, right? The Lord God has revealed himself and said, Pharaoh, that's not true. You're not the biggest deal anymore. You're not the biggest guy here in Egypt. God has revealed himself. But that's what's, that's what's holding this. That one prideful thought, that one arrogant belief keeps Pharaoh standing in opposition to the one who is infinitely greater than he is. Right? Not just a little bit greater, infinitely greater God is than we are, than Pharaoh is. And so this circumstance, because it's changed, God revealing himself, now all of a sudden there has to be some humility. There has to be some relenting on Pharaoh's part about the position that he's taking. I want you to think about it like this. This is an illustration that I've loved and it really pictures this situation well. There was a man who had just been elected to the British Parliament. Now this is like our our, our legislative body, our House and Senate. This is the legislative body in the United Kingdom. And this particular man, he was elected to lead what is called the House of the Lords. So what he's going to do, he's going to bring his family to London and they're going to tour the city. Now they're going to enter a building called the Westminster Abbey. And I've got a couple pictures I want you to see. This building is stunning. This architecture, the magnificence. I mean, from the outside, you're like, that is an incredible building. That's a tourist attraction. I'd like to check that out one day. But then there's another picture of the inside, and it's grand. This hall is grand. I mean, you're walking in there, and it's so impressive. And so as he's giving his family a tour of this building, walking through halls like this, he notices the facial expression on his nine-year-old daughter. I, too, I have a nine-year-old daughter. Selah, this reminds me of you, because I think you would ask a question like this. But here is this nine-year-old daughter looking around with amazement. She's awestruck by the magnificence of this structure. And so her dad watches her for a minute, but then he finally asks, curious what is going on with her. He says, my child, what are you thinking about? And she says this, this innocence of a child out of the mouth of babes. She says, daddy, I was thinking about how big you look in our house, but how small you look here. In the change of a circumstance, when you get out of the circle or the little arena that you think you're a really big deal in, and you find yourself standing before Almighty God, you find just how small and minuscule we all are. And so I would have loved to have heard what this father said next after his little girl tells him that. I hope it was a statement riddled with humility. But that's exactly what's going on with Pharaoh. And this is a truth that is true for every single one of us. When we, when we look at the stars, when we look at the things that God knows, that God understands, that God hung in the sky, it should make us feel really, really small. When our little girl or one of our kids says something that kind of cuts us down to size, it's a really good thing because we really ought to check that we don't think of ourselves too highly than we ought to. And certainly not thinking we can exalt ourselves to the same plane as God. Right? That's what Pharaoh has been doing here. Pride is such a sneaky little thing that can creep into our hearts, that can creep into our lives, that can make us think that we're better or more worthy than another person or maybe even more righteous in the sight of God than we really are. 
But when we find ourselves here, oh, how small we become, Pharaoh won't acknowledge that. Picture that whole situation, everything that has been revealed, times 10 because we're in the eighth plague here, and yet Pharaoh still won't refuse, or he still refuses to humble himself before God. So what's going to come next? God talks about the eighth plague. A plague of locusts. Once again, the message is tomorrow, God will bring locusts into your territory, into the land of Egypt. An east wind is going to blow. And we're going to see that east wind is going to come again for the Red Sea. And we see the east wind is kind of this wind of judgment that God brings. So an east wind is going to bring a swarm of locusts that are going to devour everything. He says, whatever residue, whatever remnants of those early crops are left from the hailstorm that that completely obliterated the land, whatever's left from those, and whatever's left from the later crops that weren't affected by the hail, and whatever's still on the trees, whatever grasses are in the field, they are going to be completely devoured. This swarm of locusts is going to be greater than has ever been seen by by the Egyptians, by their fathers, by their father, father's fathers to this day. Moses is instructed by God to say. So it's going to be severe. The most intense plague that has come upon them thus far. Picture locusts everywhere. Picture locusts so thick they hide the very ground. You you can't even take a single step without the crunch of locusts. And if you're wearing flip-flops, they're jumping up on your feet and you got prickly legs and weird wings and those chomping mouths that you're thinking that there's locusts everywhere. They're going to be on your houses and on your servants. Now, there have been locust swarms like this, kind of like this throughout all of history, where we can grab some more details and understand kind of what's going on here. But I also want you to understand this. There are parts of the world right now, while we're in a shelter in place in in California, in many parts of the United States, this global pandemic is affecting everywhere. But there are some places in East Africa, countries of Somalia and Ethiopia, Kenya, right now, in addition to that coronavirus, they are seeing swarms of locusts that are greater in size than they have seen for the past 70 years. That's happening right now today. And they're devouring everything. And they're trying to fight them with, with herbicide and pesticide. And they've got planes that are flying over to try and to, to kill off these swarms to try and protect their food supply. Pharaoh doesn't have any planes to be able to try and fight off. They're going to be completely helpless. But I just want you to understand, that's what's going on. These swarms, they're devastating. Huge locust swarms like this one, they can cover several hundred square miles. In one square mile, there can be upwards to 200 million locusts. One square mile. In one 10 square feet, one 10 square feet area, there can be up to 10,000 locusts. And that's what they're describing here. They're covering the entire earth. They're so thick. These locusts, as they start swarming in, we're going to see the darkness because they blot the sun for a minute. It's like the swarm on the title slide. There's these swarms that are coming, and they're so thick, and they're so dark, it actually blocks the sunlight from the land for a time and we see that happens as recorded here these locusts have the ability to eat their weight in food every single day and if there's that many of them they have voracious appetites like teenagers they just eat and they eat and they eat my son just turned 11 last week and he's just always knocking on the door of the pantry and he just likes to eat like a locust sometimes but that's what we're seeing here it's just crazy to see what God is is allowing to happen what's going to come in this eighth 
plague. So it's devastating. They eat up all the vegetation, all the crops, all the trees, the grasses, which are the food for the livestock. It's going to be food shortages and famines. This is going to completely devastate Egypt for years to come. This plague is going to be called later in verse 17 by Pharaoh himself. He says, will you pray for me and take away this death? That's what he calls it. This is a death sentence for the land of Egypt. A locust swarm so big as this. And then when he, when he finally sees it, that's what he's going to say. But God is saying, in essence, Pharaoh, hey, I'm sorry to keep bugging you. But how long are you going to refuse to humble yourself before me? How long? That's what I'm wanting to do. That's what I'm trying to do. Bring you to your knees. And you're still shaking your fist at me. So this is what is going to come next. Now we get the idea upon hearing this that at first Pharaoh is he's, he's emotionless, he's apathetic, he's arrogant, he's unmoved by this warning again. So much so that in verse 6 it says that Moses and Aaron are just going to walk away. There, there's no dialogue. They're just like, alright, fine, that's going to happen. And then they just leave. Pharaoh saying, I'm taking orders from nobody. But verse 7 says, Pharaoh's own servants, they say, um, excuse me, Mr. Pharaoh, hey, how long are we going to keep this up? Hey, how long? How long are we going to allow this man, Moses, to be a snare to us, to bait us with another trap? And they say, Pharaoh, don't you know the land of Egypt is already devastated? Note that. They're saying this before the plague of locusts even come. Don't you know? It's already devastated. This word that they use for devastated or destroyed here, it's best interpreted as perished, as it's died, it's ceased to exist. They're saying, Pharaoh, your kingdom is being killed over this. How long are we going to continue to do this? They say, let the people go. Let the men go and worship the Lord their God. Quit taking the bait. And that's enough for Pharaoh to kind of say, all right, well, let's, let's bring them back in and let's try to have another conversation. These guys are trying their best diplomatic approach, but upon hearing that, Pharaoh's going to invite Moses back in and look at what he says in verse 8. He says, he says, uh, go serve the Lord your God. By the way, who are the ones that are going? Now I want to ask you, is he really making a question because he doesn't know? Because every single time they show up before Pharaoh, they repeat the Lord's terms. Let my people go. So who's going? All my people. Whoever are the Hebrew people, he's the God of the Hebrews, my people are going. So when he, when he says, okay, by the way, who are going? What's he setting up? He's setting up another counter offer. He's trying to see if he can compromise what God has called Moses and Aaron to do to pass on his will, his best, the deliverance of all of his people. And Moses is not going to take the bait. He's going to say, we're all going to go. Our young, our old, our sons, our daughters, our flocks, our herds, we're all going to go. I picture Moses saying, nobody gets left behind. Nobody. We're all going. Moses knows God's terms, and so he's not going to compromise. But what we see here in Pharaoh's heart is another arrogant moment. We've got this this false assumption here that he can negotiate with God. That this is a negotiation, right? It's a command. Here are my terms. They haven't changed. But Pharaoh, look at this. He's trying to think as if he can negotiate with God. Well, well, let me see if I put this on the table. What if just the men can go? As if he's assuming that the women and the children aren't as important to God as the men are. And they are. 
My people, all of my people is God's promise. That's who he wants to deliver out of the bondage of Egypt. All the men, all the women, all the children. He even cares about the livestock. So he's saying they're all going to go. So no deals. But I just want you to see this. Pharaoh is trying to approach God with a negotiation tactic as if they are on equal terms. As if Pharaoh and God are on equal terms and they just get it as two different leaders of these two different nations get to kind of work out the details of an agreement. That has got to be one of the most arrogant things we've ever seen in the scripture. To think that we can come before God on equal terms and negotiate with him. That's like the most ridiculous thing you can think of. If you're even thinking you can do that, that's so arrogant. God is going to tell Job, where were you? When I laid down the foundations of the earth, did did I have to ask you? Did I need your measurements? Did I even console you? No, you were nowhere. Where were you when I called the sun to rise on the first morning dawn? Did I need your help with that? No, no. Have we ever called the sun to rise? No. Could we ever? No. Where were you when I determined the boundaries of the sea? He asks, God asks Job this. And Job shows us what we should all do. Take our hand and put it over our mouths and shut up because we were nowhere. We are but dust. And dust doesn't get a say to the creator, look at how great I am. We are but dust. God is the Lord of heaven and earth. Pharaoh is but dust. And arrogantly thinking that I get to approach God and negotiate his terms. We either humble ourselves before God or we are humbled by God. Because God resists the proud and exalts the humble. God will exalt the humble and he will humble the proud. That's the way it is. That is who God is. We don't get to work out the details of this. We say, yes, Lord, or we refuse to humble ourselves. That's the conundrum that Pharaoh finds himself in. So in this arrogant way, he thinks he can negotiate and make a deal with God. And Moses is just simply going to stand upon the word of God and say, no deal, no compromise. God's terms are, all of my people are going to go, and this won't end until it happens. So notice, Pharaoh is enraged, and in verse 10, he offers some empty threats. Verse 10, he says, the Lord had better be with you when I let you go, because evil is ahead of you. Pharaoh's kind of showing his true heart here, saying, you better watch your back, boys, because when I finally let you go, there's going to be evil ahead of you. I'm going to chase you down with my chariots. I'm going to catch you with the Red Sea. And we see that is his plan, and it doesn't go the way he thinks it's going to go. But that's what he's saying here, these empty promises. He's 0 for 7. He's the king of a land destroyed, but he's still full of arrogance. Nobody in his court, nobody within earshot of hearing this eighth plague being foretold what's going to happen tomorrow. Not a single person within earshot has a sliver of doubt that these locusts aren't going to come except Pharaoh. Think about how sad that is. Here he is still showing us again. He will not humble himself. He will not submit to the Lord. He will not surrender. He's continuing to dig his feet in, in arrogance. And so what are we going to see? Awe be displayed even in the face of arrogance. Verse 12 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land and all the hail has left. 
So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts, and the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previously there had not been such locusts as they, nor shall there be such after them. For they covered the face of the whole earth so that the land was darkened and they ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which had, which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, please forgive my sin only this once and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. So he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord and the Lord turned a very strong west wind which took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the children of Israel go. So just as it was, was foretold it was going to happen, the eighth plague comes. The locusts come and they are everywhere and they devour everything and there was nothing they had ever imagined it would be this severe. But this is the mighty hand of God coming down upon Egypt once more. And what does God want? What does God want us to do under his mighty hand? He wants us to humble himself as we read about in 1 Peter chapter 5 to open our study. To humble ourselves. But what does Pharaoh do? He's going to call for Moses and Aaron again. Notice in haste, with urgency, he's sending for them. Now whoever is his runner has to run through this crazy swarm of locusts, which would be no fun at all, to find Moses and Aaron and bring them back before Pharaoh. And they do, they come. I think it's amazing. Moses and Aaron, they come. And Pharaoh's going to say, listen, I have sinned against the Lord this time. Pray for me. So the Lord would take away this death, this plague only. But I want you to look at that specifically in verse 17. This is his prayer. Forgive my sin only this once. Okay, fine. I've been wrong in this instance. This is my one and only sin. Again, how arrogant, how arrogant is that? And then he says, I want you to, to take away this death only. I think about if you have an audience of a Moses and an Aaron, vessels of the Lord God himself, the intermediaries, the go-betweens, and all you want is to be forgiven of one sin, and all you want is one plague to be removed, you are absolutely arrogantly standing before God. You don't understand any of it. Because what I want is I want all of my sins forgiven. And I don't want just this death taken away. I want eternal life in Jesus' name. I want to be washed of all my sins, forgiven of all my sins. And I want to surrender my life to Jesus to have eternal life eternally forever. But in an arrogant heart, he says, well, just take away these consequences because this is no, this is no fun for me. Right, This is not repentance, just like we talked about in greater detail it, it last two weeks ago when we were covering the plague of hail. This is not true repentance. This is just regret. This is just remorse. He just doesn't like the consequences. Just make those stop. He's still not ready to humble himself before the Lord. But Moses and Aaron, they're still going to pray. And God is still going to send a west wind... And he's going to take all of those locusts, every single one, that's a miracle in and of itself, all of those locusts are going to blow out and notice they're going to be blown into the Red Sea 
where they are going to drown and die. And that is a foreshadowing. You can know that that is a foreshadowing of what is going to come to Pharaoh and all of his armies at the end of this dialogue, this conversation that God has been patiently having. That's where it's going. The Red Sea is inching closer for Pharaoh. And here's another opportunity for him to stop refusing to humble himself before the Lord. He's only going to get one more after this. It's crazy to me to think about that, but we're reaching the end of these and he still won't, he won't do that. So as we think about Pharaoh here and we think about what, what he's done and the position that he's taken here, I want us to bring this back and make some personal application to our own lives. And it's challenging and it's heavy, but it's important. We, we have to do this. We have to say, this is what the word of God says. Now, what is it speaking to my heart? And the first question we have to ask is, is, am I being like Pharaoh? Am I looking at a situation where I see the mighty hand of God on display around me, yet I'm refusing to humble myself before him? Is that happening to me? Because I don't want to be that when the one guy I don't want to be like is Pharaoh. So let's look at some of these things. Think about some of the questions here. Think about verse three. Think about God asking this question to every single human being on the planet today. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? How long? How long are you going to continue to do that? I think about the fact that God gives grace to the humble. I think the fact that God gives us a chance to change our minds at all shows of how incredibly loving and merciful and gracious he is. The fact that he asks this question in the eighth plague shows that God is truly long-suffering, desiring none to perish, not even Pharaoh. But it still has to come down to a choice to being made, one that we have to stop refusing. But think about that. That's, that's what's happening here. Pharaoh is literally seeing locusts devour everything in Egypt. The gods that he worships, the gods of the crops, unable to do anything. The gods of grain that he worships in Egypt, helpless. The guardians of the fields, the protector against pests, worthless, futile. All the work of the hand, all the toil, all the cultivating, all the soil, all that was done to plant and so ready to reap, they're watching it all be devoured by these locusts. Up until this point through eight plagues, this has to be the greatest attention grabber for all those in Egypt. Without question, the mighty hand of God stripping away all of the life resources, all of the food resources in Egypt. Picture that fertile land stripped barren. Picture empty trees without leaves. Picture the ground stripped. Picture livestock walking around, slowly starving to death because there's no food to eat. Picture devastation here in the land of Egypt. And here we have God saying, how long will you refuse to humble me, to humble yourself before me? How long? When we look at this situation, we want to know, well, what Pharaoh, sh- what, what should he have said? Oh, if only there was an example for us in the text of what he should have said. Well, there might not be an an example here in the book of Exodus, but there is a great example in the book of Joel. And I'm going to show a few verses in a minute. Not quite yet, Charlie, but I'm going to show some verses here, but I want us to understand this. In the book of Joel, in chapter 1, it speaks of a devastating locust swarm that comes upon the nation of Israel. The southern tribes, the tribe of Judah, their land is going to be completely devastated by swarming locusts and crawling locusts and eating locusts and hungry locusts, etc., etc. And they're probably thinking, oh, that was just a plague for the Egyptians. That doesn't happen to us, right? 
arrogance, and yet God sends that to them. Why? To get their attention, to show them their sin. Listen to this, to give them an opportunity for redemption through repentance. That's why God does what he does, to give an opportunity of redemption through repentance, to show I can redeem you through all this, but what do I need? You to humble yourself before me to repent, to change your mind about who is the Lord God and who isn't. So he's going to do that. So in in Joel chapter one or or after Joel chapter one, the prophet Joel is going to speak God's heart to his people. And what does God want? This is Joel chapter two, verses 12 through 13. This is what God wants. This is the right response. Joel 2, 12 through 13 says, now therefore says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. What does God want? What's this perfect response here? God says, turn to me with all your heart. Humble yourself before me. Turn your heart to me. He he echoes the the response of, of what Jesus would say. Come to me, all you who are thirsty. Come to me, all you who are weary. Come to me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father unless they first come to me. And we come to Jesus who made a way by dying on a cross. The, the most incredibly excruciating act of humility that has ever been performed by the Lord God of heaven himself. He humbles himself and we go through that way. We, we deny ourselves, we pick up our cross and we start following Jesus. Because the crucifixion isn't the end, right? The resurrection shows the stamp of approval that God fulfilled the promise that Jesus is the Messiah. But turn to me, he says, and he says with words and with actions, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, understanding the height from which you have fallen and saying, I am, I'm so sorry, I don't want to fight against the Lord. He's God and I am not. And then he says, rend your heart, not your garments. In this day, you would tear your clothes. When you see your sin and you're broken over it, you say, oh, I'm a sinner. I deserve death. God, you're so gracious. I need, I need your forgiveness. You would tear your clothes as a sign of outward repentance, of outward mourning. But God says, don't do that. Tear your heart. Rend your heart. Let your heart be broken. Let your heart be soft. Let your heart be ready to have the implanted word sown inside your lives so I can change you from the inside out. That's what he says to do. That is the way you're supposed to respond when the locusts come and devour everything in your life. When the locusts come and the mighty hand of God is revealed to you and you take a step back and say, Father, I have not been living the way I'm supposed to be living. I've been living in arrogance. I've been living in pride. I've been living in opposition to you. And you have my attention now. And so I'm going to turn to you. I'm going to turn from what I was looking at, from what I was putting my trust in. I'm going to turn to you. That's what repentance is. To turn your eyes from the wrong thing to the right thing. To return to the Lord. And I just want us to know this. This season of our lives, this season that we are living in right now, This COVID-19, this coronavirus, this global pandemic. Listen, this is the greatest attention grabber of our generation. This is the thing that has gotten people's attention more than any other single thing globally. 
And we can look at it and we can say, well, I don't know, I don't know who's directly behind it, but I know the Lord God is the blessed controller of all things. I know He could prevent it, which means He's allowing it. At the worst, He's allowing it. And or he's doing similar things that are being done in Egypt and he's showing us the gods of this age, the gods and idols that we worship and he's showing them that they're powerless as things sit empty and all these things are broken down. I have no problem saying, God, what do you want us? Now that you have our attention, what do you want us to do? I have no problem seeing the same exact answer that we see in Joel. I have no problem saying, I see the locusts swarming through and devouring a whole lot of things in my life. And I have no problem saying, what do you want me to do, God? Turn to you with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind. I have no problem seeing that God wants me to repent, me to repent, you to repent. I have no problem. I say, yes, Lord. Why? Because I want to humble myself under the mighty hand of God. I want you, church family, friends, listeners, to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Not to be shaking your fist at the Lord, but see, God, you are awesome. You just shut down the globe in a matter of weeks. That's incredible. And it's an intention grabber to bring us to this point where we see God's grace again because he gives grace to the humble God has made a way to give grace to those who come in Jesus' name. That's incredible. You may be hearing this for the first time. You may have forgotten that, but that's the love of Almighty God reached out to humanity, offering a way of salvation, offering a hope where it seems like there is no hope. That is what has happened here for Pharaoh. And it breaks my heart that Pharaoh, as the Red Sea is inching closer to him, it breaks my heart that Pharaoh refuses again. But it also challenges my heart knowing that the Red Sea is inching closer for all of us as well. 100% of people die. We are not going to live forever, which means there's going to come a point where we have to reconcile these things. And I say today is the day when God asks us the question, how long will you refuse to humble yourself? I pray you're saying in your heart, no longer, no longer. I'm humbling myself today. Father, I need you today. I want to turn to my I want to turn my life over to you today. I want to surrender to you today and now. Today is the day of salvation. I place my hope and trust in you, Jesus. I don't need to see anything more. I've seen enough and I'm going to humble myself before you. But that's what I want us to know. Now, as we see from a physical standpoint, we see these locusts devastate these physical things in Egypt. I want you to know that the sin we tolerate in our lives the sin that we allow, the sin that we excuse, the sin that we justify, it is like allowing locusts just to come and eat away at our lives in the same way. To eat away chunks of our heart, to eat away places of joy, to eat away those things that we're hoping on. But when we turn to the Lord, when we humble ourselves before him, what does he promise he will do? The book of Joel says this, Joel chapter 2 verse 25 The Lord says, so I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. I will restore to you, the Lord says. When we think about this, sometimes we we get hung up on the the pride issue and the humility. We think, oh Lord, he, he just wants to take all these things from me. And we say, that's not true. The Lord wants to give you abundant life. The Lord wants to restore to you the years the locust have eaten. The Lord wants to take those things that feel like they're totally void and futile and empty. And he says, I want to restore them. I want to mend your broken heart. I want to make whole what has been taken away. I want to restore until there's another harvest more plentiful than has ever been in your entire life. 
And we think, of how does God do that? How can God restore years that have been wasted? How can God renew fields that have, have been devastated by locusts? And we, we say, well, well, did he not do that with Peter? When Peter, when he calls him alongside the Sea of Galilee and he restores him, and then on the day of Pentecost, when he uses him, does he not restore the wasted denials when he was in the courtyard of Caiaphas? Think about the Apostle Paul, a man who lived a chunk of his life vehemently opposed to the gospel. Jesus himself says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And yet he's going to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. He's going to use Paul as probably the greatest apostle, the greatest missionary and evangelist his world has ever known. How does God do it? God does it because he doesn't, he doesn't reap a one-to-one. What he sows into our lives, when the word of God gets planted into our lives, one seed gets planted, and through God's power, it has the capacity to yield 30, 60, 100-fold. How does he renew it? How does he restore it? He is able to bring supernatural bumper crop of spiritual fruit in our lives when we turn to him. Now, just so we're clear, what kind of fruit am I talking about? I'm talking about love. Multiplying love in your heart. I'm talking about joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. I'm talking about wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I'm talking about power over sin power to walk this life in Jesus' name as we're filled with his Holy Spirit. I'm talking about being able to see other people surrender to the Lord themselves, and that is just to name a few. But God is able to restore those years and do something beautiful. He can make beauty out of the ashes. He can renew and restore the years the locusts have eaten. But it all starts by coming back to this question and saying, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? The answer has to be no longer. No longer. Today is the day I'm deciding, Jesus, I'm following you. I'm surrendering and I'm going to follow you. You come and be Lord of my life. I want us to understand this. This is a truth. It's a mystery, but it's a truth. The Christian life, it's one that we must lose to gain. It's one we must give to obtain. It's one we must be last to be first. We must be humbled to be exalted. We must be least to be greatest. We must die to truly live. That is what Jesus taught us. That's what Jesus' earthly life exemplified for us. And he's the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. He's right. We can say, that's what I want to do. I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I'm going to clothe myself in Christ. I'm going to clothe myself in humility. I'm going to confess with my mouth these sins, and I'm going to allow Jesus to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Please, friends, let that be today. Don't be like Pharaoh and stand in arrogance before the face of Almighty God. Humble yourself and say, God, I need you today. Let the restoration start in my heart today. Jesus rose from the grave to be able to make that offer and accomplish its fruit in you today. So ask him. Pray with me now as we wrap this time up. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Father, there's nothing more that we want, nothing more that we want than to be with you, Jesus. To be brought back into a right relationship with you. And that's what you've done for us. That's what you offer. That's what your righteous right hand presents. And Father, forgive us of our pride and forgive us of our arrogance. God, we want to let those things go. And we want to come to you in humility and say, Father, I'm broken. I need restoration. I need healing. I need a a broken heart mended. I need my mind washed. God, I need it washed by the water of the word. 
I need to be born again. I need to have a fresh new work done in my life. I need a work of the Spirit. Father, all those different things that we request in the different stages of our lives, and Father, I know that you are able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we can ever ask or imagine. And I know this is your heart. This is what you want to do. So Spirit, I just pray you finish the work that gets begun here. You plant these words into our hearts. You bring the harvest. You bring the the restoration of fruit, of faithfulness, of peace and joy, and all those other beautiful things that come with a relationship with you. Father, our heart is yours. And we give it to you now. We surrender it now as we humbly come before you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for doing what you have done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.